It's been 45 years and now Davy Russell shakes up Tiger Roll. Magic of Light in second, Rathvinden in third, Walk in the Mill is back in fourth. Tiger Roll is remarkable. He comes up towards the winning line under Davy Russell to win his second round Oxhealth Grand National. Tiger Roll joins the greats. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the S Word Podcast. Of course, that was Tiger Roll winning his second consecutive Grand National in a row. And obviously, he was going to go for his third Grand National in a row, which would have been unprecedented, Rory. I mean, how excited were you for potentially seeing Tiger Roll winning his third? Would you, would you have put a couple of quid on him? Yes, I mean, Wilson is just unbelievable. Um, I've actually backed him the first time he won, and then I backed him the second time. So I definitely would have had some money on him the third time. Because you, you're, uh, you're a man a that back the favourites, aren't you? Uh, I'm a man that backs the winner. <laughs> uh, no, I can't pick a winner for my life, but you know, yeah, enjoy a few quid here and there on the horses. It's such a shame that he didn't get to run this year, but hey, he'll go again next year, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. Because he he ran well at Cheltenham, but I think it just everyone was just so excited to see him doing just just attempting the third Grand National because most jockeys. I mean, I think you you know more about horse racing and jockeys than I do, but. For my, just am- many <laughs> for my for my amateur point of view, kind of looking over, looking in on the Grand National, kind of the kind of the kind of follower who watches the Grand National, watches the Cheltenham Week, watches. I mean, going to the Exeter races while I was down Exeter Uni, going Wincanton races on Boxing Day, which is where I live. And but I but I'm not a regular, and it just seemed like for jockeys. Well, actually, no, sorry, not jockeys. For the horses to win a Grand National is just like that is. Firstly, a lot of luck goes into it. And secondly, that's kind of like a once in a lifetime kind of achievement. And the fact that he'd done two in two years and going for the third, like, it seemed like that was almost history ready to be made. I think, I think if you ask many of my friends, they will tell you that my horse knowledge is, you know, below amateur. Um, the amount of losing tips I've given away is probably all of them. Um, but yeah, you're right. You know, to win one is incredible. To win two is unthinkable. And to even attempt the third, which he was going to do, it was a perfect day. The ground was looking good for him. You know, it looked like all the stars were aligning. But, you know, he has to wait a year. It's fine. He'll go back into training. Had a good run at Cheltenham. And, yeah, another year goes on and we'll see if he can do it one year older. Can I I ask you not about Tiger Roll, but about Cheltenham this year itself? Because it's had a bit of criticism because... I mean, coronavirus is very much up and running, if that's the right terminology, when Cheltenham was going on. And, and I just I just somehow, somehow it managed to get away with having, was it, it's four days, isn't it? Of about 70,000, I'm sorry if it's not the, the correct figures, but about 70,000 people swarmed into a tiny enclosed space, all pretty unhealthy guys, men and women, drinking, betting, smoking. And I just, and like how that, managed to um, go ahead as one of the last last sporting events and it, and it felt like people who were there knew it was one of the last sporting events so they they almost took it as like this is the last bit of life sport we're gonna have for a while like how, how did that how did that actually happen no you're you're completely right i mean i don't know i don't know how you know day one and coronavirus was really beginning to kick off and the, i guess the organizers just thought you know what yeah it is the last bit of sport we're gonna have for a while why not run the next few days they had it all planned i'm sure they would have lost a lot of money if they didn't run it and cancelled it at such late notice so you know they just thought why not let's run it and see what happens but you're right i think i think looking back on it now it's obviously a mistake from the organizers 
I think I read an article somewhere saying they, they can trace the corona outbreak almost to quite a few members at the Cheltenham races, which is not good, obviously. But yeah, I mean, it was a strange decision, but ultimately, I guess it was down to the organisers and the, I guess the government for not stopping it, really. Yeah, I guess I guess they, the organisers were just doing kind of, at the time, they were just thinking selfishly but that's also was harsh on them because they were no one knew the severity of it at the time so they were just doing what they thought best was for them exactly and they were just um, probably following government's advice at that point right exactly. and so i guess it was legal it was legal when they did it so it was it was advised maybe it was against yeah and i, and um, I think i'm not 100 percent sure on this but i think on the last day the gold cup day people are saying that it went on because the queen had a runner or two <laughs> <laughs> and the Queen wanted to see them run. <laughs> well, well, maybe we should get the Queen on a, on a podcast and we should maybe ask we'll get her on next week. <laughs> maybe maybe stay, stay, stay tuned, listeners, and we'll try and get her on next week. But, um, but anyway, there, of course, we'll that, give, was, we'll give Auntie Liz <laughs> that, that was Tiger Roll going for a, get, succeeding in getting his, um, his back-to-back Grand National um, crown. And um, obviously, we'll have to wait another year to see if he does go for the three in a row. But yeah, what a horse. And I can't wait to see him run again. Nor can I. Nor can I. For this week on the S Word podcast, we're very happy to welcome Dominic Wardock. Dom started his rugby career at Wasps and having won the European Championship and the Premiership within his first four years of playing professional rugby. He since then went on to go and play in Ohio in America and then came back and he was instrumental in um, getting Newcastle back promoted from the Championship to the Premiership this year and has since actually taken on a player coach role. So we can't wait to hear Dom's views and his experiences and what he's thinking for rugby future. So welcome Dom to the S Word podcast. Would you mind just quickly just telling the listeners about you know, how you've been keeping busy during the last uh, couple of months? Yeah, well, it's, it's been a bit of a challenge, hasn't it? And I think, uh, I think the first week or so I was trying to struggling for a routine and you know it was a bit all over the place but I think once I got that routine I you know I dare I say I've almost enjoyed it it's given me a bit of time to you know do a lot of reading a lot of learning um and with the with the coaching role that's been really really valuable so it's uh it's been a it's been quite a productive period actually I think it's a mixed one because I think some people have really enjoyed it and some people have found it you know, really hard. I mean, as you were saying, you know, all the students have left their parents and come back out to Jesmond. So, I mean, I'm sure they enjoyed it the first few weeks, but now they're back. But it's always yeah. well, well undressed for me as well, because we've spoken to a couple of rugby players, Jack Maunder and Sam Arnold on the podcast, and they've, just because how you guys don't really have much of a break, um, even in, um, even within between seasons, it seems like it's absolutely still a lot of work. So it's been quite a good time just to let your bodies recover and get going. And especially from your point of view, because obviously you've had a you've had a very successful career dating back all the way towards about 2006, 2007 when you joined Wasps. I mean, I am personally a Wasp fan, and I would love to know what it was like to be part of the Wasp team at the beginning. When I mean, you you won the Heineken Cup and the Premiership within your first couple of seasons playing with the likes of Delalio, Lucy, Simon Shaw. I mean, what was it like as a young kid joining a team like that? Well, it was, it was pretty crazy. I think coming into that environment was naturally pretty intimidating uh, to start with. Um, these were guys that I'd grown up watching, idolising, wanting to replicate in my own career. And then here I was, you know, on a, on a rugby pitch training with them, playing with them. So it was a bit, it was quite surreal. But I think you quickly learn that if you want to push on in that in that space, that you need to get over that pretty quickly. And and the the, the players were 
were helpful in that as well. I remember Lawrence one day saying, telling myself and Danny Cipriani saying, lads, you need to be bossing us out here. That's your job. That's your role. I want you to be doing that. And I think when those sort of senior players are showing that faith in the new and um, urging you to do to to really bring you along and bring you into the fold and asking you to boss them around, I think that makes a really big impact. Um, so I think the initial introduction was quite surreal, but then you you quickly got over it, and once you got into the sort of business of the, of the rugby, uh, it became pretty normal. Uh, having watched like um, what's the last dance recently, the documentary about Michael Jordan, I just I'm just interested to hear about what it's like to go into that kind of successful sporting like environment um because i mean would you say the environment back in those wasp days was maybe more intimidating and the culture was slightly more like hierarchical than it is now within um in newcastle like how has the culture changed yeah i think i think in that wasp team you actually had so many successful players and brilliant players in that in that group with that there was i think there was a natural hierarchy that had been developed over a number of years because that team had formed over a number of years and you know with it with that the dynamics of the group had formed and there was you know there was a lot of synergy and understanding within the group of people's roles and you know going into it everyone lived the behaviors and the values that were expected that of that of that performance environment and so coming into it as a young lad you know, you quickly realised that you were going to have to be on your money in order to be part of that environment and contribute to that environment. So I think as a, as a young player, it was really helpful, in, you know, with your own development, not only just technical development, but also uh, understanding, you know, what it takes to be a, you know, a really good rugby player um, off the pitch. But we, I mean, there was a, but there was, you know, it was a brilliant balance because the, you know, the, the culture at was at the time was a real work hard, play hard. Mm. ethos there um you know we'd always celebrate the wins pretty hard and which was i think i think was quite unique even in the noughties um in the even in those sort of mid to early noughties um can you I expand remember, a little bit on that about how um how a, a night would uh well yeah a big so, win I mean, the big heineken cup win back in uh back in 2008 i think it was the um <laughs> i'm trying to think where we went after the heineken yeah where, where, where was the after party well, on, well, 2008, the after party was at a place called, I think it was Mamalangi's, on which was on the King's Road. I don't know, if, I don't know if it still exists there now, but it was, yeah, it was good fun. I'm just going back to that time. I remember uh, Tom Voice and Paul Saki lived together, and they, you know, they, but they lived together in Chelsea, and they were never too to turn down a night at a three <laughs> session. <laughs> but because they because they were doing the business on the pitch, no one it didn't matter. That was that was the attitude at what it was like. You know, as long as you you're doing the business on on the Saturday and you're winning, we you know you can sort of do what you want during the week, which right. I think was was quite unique. And I mean, do you now that you know coaching in the Newcastle format? Do you how do you guys bring in the new players? Is there anything you do to ease that transition into the full team or? I think the tra- the transition for new players. Uh, I think it's it's a very welcoming group and it's a very very together group, which which naturally helps you know bringing these guys I- into the into the fold. I think that's a that's a you know it's a difficult transition for any club, and I, I don't think we've got any particularly you know specific strategies around dealing with that. I think it's just around you know there's there's a lot of good 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 men at Newcastle Falcons, and I think they just they do care about 
when people come into the group and they're, they're welcomed they're welcomed well and i think the families are also welcomed into the fold so that that helps yeah. that process as well um yeah so regarding that because obviously you're taking you've taken up a player coaching role at the falcons which um i'd love to touch on a little bit in a, in a second but i'll just regarding yeah so regarding the coaching has there any coach in particular stood out to you which you kind of you're learning your kind of methods techniques off i mean you've been coached by the likes the greats like ian mcgeekin but anyone standing out to you can you just give the listeners a little just insight about what your kind of player coach role is at newcastle yeah so my my role at newcastle uh, last year was to i was a player obviously and then i was supporting with the backs defense stuff you know in terms of influences on my career you know you mentioned ian, ian mcgeekin who is a brilliant rugby brain and, and taught me a huge amount at the beginning part of my career but I think the most influential coach at that, that time at Wasp was probably was Sean Edwards as a defence coach. You know, his, his passion, his uh, dedication to winning and his knowledge of the game was, was pivotal to the success we enjoyed during that period. Um, and I think he's, he's had a heavy influence on the way I try to coach. I'd also, you know, probably mention a guy called Rob Hoadley who took over from Sean yeah. at Wasps as a defence coach. When, when Sean left and he, he also had a, a big influence on me. He, he sort of mentored me as a player and then when he transitioned into his coaching role, we had a, a close relationship there. So I, I, those are probably the two guys that have had the biggest influence on my approach. It, yeah, interesting you mentioned uh, Sean Edwards because obviously you know, he, is, he seems to have absolutely transformed the, the French, um, French defence. I mean, you obviously rate him highly then. Do you think actually that you know, France beating the Six Nations and their subsequent uh, results after. I know they, they, I think they lost to Scotland. But um, so, would a lot of people were praising like just Sean Edwards as a, in particular for that like victory? And would you say that that is merited? Just to how good he is as a coaching? Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's a coincidence that really? we saw that passion and that desire from the French team. And you know, let's be honest, like defense. A lot of defense is based on attitude and desire to support your mates get off the ground quickly, get back in the defensive line and put your body on the line. And that ultimately comes down to, you know, togetherness, passion. Um, and Sean is the best in the world at, at, at getting players to, to buy into that and to really invigorate that that sense of desire in, in his players. So I, I really don't think it's a good Why do you not think he has coached at all for England I mean do you think yeah, that's a big they've really missed out there I know he's obviously been affiliated with Wales for a long time it just seems if you're calling him the best defence coach in the world and he's not coaching for arguably the richest uh, nation in the world yeah so I, th- I think for whatever reason it's not quite worked out I think when you know when when um, when Gats when Gatland moved to Wales obviously Sean and um, Sean and Gats had a great relationship and that's how that role came up and then now, since then, he's moved on to a new challenge at, at, at France. I think it's a shame that he's never coached England, and mm. I'm sure, you know, I, I'm sure he would do brilliant, brilliant things with the national team in England. But for, for whatever reason, it's just it's not it's not happened. And what what are your views on Eddie? I mean, he's obviously just signed a new contract. Do you think that's a good decision from us, or what do you think? Yeah, I, I think so. I think you look at the development of that team over the the last four years. And after the semi-final, we like, you know, it's the best team in the world. We're going to walk mm. to the finals. And it, and it didn't quite happen on the day. And I think, you know, probably a bit of that comes down to the South Africans were a bit more experienced and probably had a, 
bit more of that big, you know, that that occasion experience. So I think it's I think it's the right move for him to have another World Cup cycle. You know, I'm fascinated by Eddie. Uh, you know, I listen to everything that he releases in podcasts and <laughs> writing and stuff like He's that. He's just got a new podcast, hasn't he? Yeah, so the the yeah. one with Conor O'Shea on the yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's I found that fascinating, and for any young coaches out there, I definitely recommend having a listen to it. I think he's very, you know, operating at um, a different level to a lot of coaches, and it's I think what he's done with the England team is brilliant, and I and I'm sure he'll continue that development path process going forward. Because I've also got a keen interest in him I've actually I've guiltily um, read his autobiography as well but um, but I'd, I'd seen how he'd potentially had a bit of a burnout following with Australia following their World Cup final defeat to England back in 03 but looking on to kind of the international scene I mean he's got well we've got three and a half years now until the next World Cup you as a player coach at Newcastle obviously you've just been confirmed to be promoted back to the uh, the Premiership are there any players within the Newcastle team whether young or um, established which you might actually might see um, you know hopefully getting a couple of call up call ups into Eddie Jones's squad yes I think so so we've got a lad on the wing called Adam Radwan who um, he's like Grease Lightning he's um, <laughs> Yeah, so he, I think he's a, he's a special player and I think he made huge developments last year in his game. Obviously, he's got incredible natural ability um, and just we're adding to that, um, just, you know, creating a more, you know, he's, he's adding to it and creating a more rounded game. And, and How old is uh, he? Uh, I think he's 21. Okay. So, so yeah, I think he, yeah. he's a huge prospect and I'm really excited to see how he develops next year and beyond. And how good is it for these good for these you know up and coming players to play in the Premiership? You know now that Newcastle are back in it, how important is that for them? Well, I think it's one of, if not the best co- club competition in the world. And so, you know, you, as a, as a player, as an ambitious player, which you know more often than not, academy players are. You know, they they're competitive people. They're in the game to achieve things. You want to be testing yourself in those sort of environments, um, so I think it's it's hugely exciting for those young lads and older lads in the squad with with that the, the challenges um, ahead next year. And I think everyone's super excited about getting stuck into it. When, yeah. And when, how do you how do you see you guys performing? Whereabouts in the table do you see yourself <laughs> in a year's time if you had to put a number on it? <laughs> Well, I'm not a betting man and I'm not allowed to bet on it anyway, so I wouldn't do it. <laughs> I, yeah, look, it, it's, it, you know, it's going to be a challenge. I think any team that gets promoted from the Championship to the Premiership knows it's going to be a challenge because the difference in the quality of the league is quite stark. I, you know, I don't know exactly where that's going to finish. All I know is I think we've got a great group of lads who have got brilliant character and, and are, you know, are going to work as hard as they can to... To be as to make Falcons as good as they can be, and that's an exciting prospect um, for a coach to be involved in that. Um, so, you know, let's let's see how it goes. But one thing I know is, you know, we'll we'll give it a good shot. It's hard to predict the Premiership at the moment, isn't it? Because I mean, obviously there's extra at the top, but like, I mean, me as a Wasp fan, like Wasp were looking, you know, looking over their shoulders for relegation, and suddenly I think they won their last four or five on the bounce before um, before the lockdown starts and suddenly they were looking looking up to top four so great thing about the premiership it is it is wide open but I, I would like to just touch on what you mentioned just a second ago about the being quite a big step up from the championship to the the premiership I mean firstly how 
how did you find like playing in the championship after playing these uh, you know Heineken Cup finals and um, and um, top of the Premiership for Wasps and then ending up um, playing down in the championship was it a big difference regarding the kind of the coverage the actual quality I think although there is a difference between you know the, the standard of the two leagues there are still a lot of good teams in that league and the, and there are a lot of very good individuals as well and if you don't prepare right you will get stung on the weekend Mm. Um, and, and particularly with rugby, you know, the emotional de- demands of rugby, um, getting yourself in the right space every week um, to, to make sure that, you, you know, when you're playing an emotionally aroused team is, is a tough challenge. And so it, it, was a, it, was, it was a tough year in that respect. And I think the, the boys responded to that challenge brilliantly. You know, we were unbeaten um, at the time the league got abandoned. But yeah, I, I think the, the there is a lot of quality in that league, and um, you know when you add to that sort of the emotional needs of the game, it's um, it was tough. Do you, do you have any opinion on? Um, obviously, there was the it was announced that there was going to be I think it was a fifty percent cut in the the funding for the championship teams just before the lockdown, the coronavirus outbreak, and then obviously they're going to be struggling financially due to losses revenue from the coronavirus as well. I mean. Can you realistically seeing all these clubs? I mean, they're all great clubs in their own right, but can you realistically see them all actually staying afloat? I don't know how it's going to play out. I think COVID is presenting, you know, a huge financial challenge to everyone in, in the professional game. You know, you add, add to that challenge the, the, fund, the funding withdrawal from the RFU and it just, the, the picture becomes slightly bleaker. How, how it plays out, I don't know. I think you'll, you'll probably see more teams going part-time to reduce their, their wage bills. But you just, you just pray that everyone gets through the period and there are, these, you know, these, like you said, these great clubs are, still exist in some format. And I mean, obviously, you said that coronavirus has hit them hard, but I think none other than for the USA rugby. I mean, they've just filed for bankruptcy. Where, where can you see the, see the USA going? They shoved your time in Ohio. Yeah, yeah it's, I, it's, it's another tough one. I think when I was in Ohio, rugby was the fastest growing game in America. And so, and I think for world rugby, having America in the picture is, is really important. Like, like you said, they've just gone, um, they've just filed for bankruptcy. So they're going through a lot of financial troubles. But you got to hope for the for the sake of the game that they come through that um, in good in in health and still existing because I think they're a hugely important player for the development of the game moving forwards. I was well, I was personally kind of shocked. I mean, I admit that I haven't read too much into it, but I'd seen it from the outside and I'd seen how the USA rugby was just growing massively. I mean, the sevens particularly, they were like like the top top four, top five. I mean, so what is the latest situation? Is there a USA rugby team? Is, there a, is it still kind of operating? What's the league saying? So the league has abandoned uh, this year, yeah. uh, but it's still, I think all the franchises are in, in, in reasonable financial health is what I've heard from the outside. From USA rugby point of view, I think World Rugby supported them so that they didn't have to file for the most severe kind of bankruptcy. But they have nonetheless filed for bankruptcy, um, I believe. Is I think I think that's the technical. You know, I think that's what they've done. Yeah. So you, I mean, it's impossible to predict where like where it goes from here. Yeah, I just I don't know. Uh, um, and now moving more onto the coaching side. Um, 
One question which I have, which I think if I was in your position, which obviously I'm not, but I would find really hard would be, how do you differentiate yourself from the coach to being one of the lads playing with them? And how do you find that? I mean, it must be a fine line, you know, going out for beers with them and then also, you know, rocking up the next day and being in charge of them, basically. Yeah, that, that is a challenge. But I think for me, coaching is based on relationships. And when you've got good relationships with lads, whether that's a peer-to-peer relationship or a coach-to-player relationship, I think... You, you, you know, you can give them a rock up the bum with, with them knowing that you have their, their best in mind. Um, and so, yeah, so I think, though, you know, those, those sort of communications can happen from a senior player or from a player to player anyway. So I think it's based on the connection and the relationship with, with the individuals. Because didn't Stuart Hooper, he started as a player coach as well at Bath before he kind of moved on to the, the head coach? I think I think I'm right in saying. Um, yeah. But like, so, what is what's your ambition? As um, do you have the ambition to stay in the kind of coaching world in the maybe in like for the next five, five, ten years, or do you see yourself moving elsewhere um, outside of rugby? Yeah, I think it's a tricky one. I've I've, I've never I've never envisioned a, a career in coaching, but um, with the experience at the back end of the season when we got relegated two years ago, when when I was offered the player coach role last year I jumped at it because I absolutely love the the experience yeah. I think I've always enjoyed thinking about the game I've always enjoyed sharing my learnings and my experiences with with younger players and so so formalizing that role has been immensely enjoyable I don't know I don't know exactly what the sort of next five ten years looks like but you know I'm really enjoying you know what's going on at the moment so we'll have to just sort of react and so looking over your career, like we're just a last question or two here. So a couple of questions. Firstly, like, is there anything you particularly regret over your career? I mean, you, you've been so close to playing for England. Is there anything which you think you, um, you might have done differently or um, just any other regrets which you may think over your, over your long career? And it's an interesting one. I don't, I don't think you should ever live with regrets. However, I will say that Around that period, around particularly when I did my Achilles and then my I tore my hamstring off the bone, a good bone in sort of quick succession at the age of 23, when I was in the England squad, I don't think I dealt with those challenging periods as well as I could have done. And maybe had I sought sort of support during that process, you know, it might have might have helped me a little bit. Was that when you got called up to the 2009-2010 tour of Australia and New Zealand, and you had that? Yeah, yeah, the so, injury in the Barbarians game. Yeah, so in the well, we we played Australia Barbarians in the midweek game, and I had the best half of my life, and then you know hurt my ankle just after that at half, just before half time. But then I was named in the England squad that year, so 2011, going into the, that World Cup year, and then um, in January, I believe it was, I tore my Achilles. Oh, God. So that was a huge. <laughs> And then that took me sort of nine months to come back from. And then the following season, I tore my hamstring off the bone just yeah. as I was sort of getting back into some form. So that, you know, those consecutive injuries really, really put me back a bit. But having said that, I don't think I dealt with that challenge in the best way I could. I'd also say that a lot of the stuff I'm reading around coaching at the moment, I think I really would have benefited from that knowledge, particularly around sort of psychology, performance psychology. Mm. And had I had that knowledge base, maybe that would have helped me as well. Having said that, 
you know, like I go back to what I said, I don't think you should have regrets. And it just, it puts me in a gr- in great stead to be able to support, you know, the lads I'm coaching on their pathways now. So mm. maybe, you know, <laughs> there's an underlying yearn that, you know, disappointment that I didn't, you know, quite satisfy that childhood dream of playing for England. But, you know, as a complete experience, I'm, I'm in a nice position now to be able to support other lads on their journey. Perfect. I mean, it sounds, sounds great. So just the way in which we like to end the kind of podcast is a 10-question quick-fire round. Yeah. So we're going to do the question and then without, without even thinking, you're <laughs> Right, you ready? Yeah. Okay. Best player played with? Danny Cipriani. Favourite person to go for a pint with? Uh, come on, um, John Welsh. Favourite coach? Rob Hoadley. Biggest drinker in the game? Voicey, Tom Voice, <laughs> when he was playing. Favourite European city? Barcelona. Beer of choice? Peroni. Favourite sport outside rugby? Cricket. Funniest in the Falcon squad? John Welsh. Most intimidating player ever played against? Yannick Josion. London or Newcastle? My heart's in Newcastle now. <laughs> Your heart's in Newcastle. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Um, um, perfect. But yeah, thanks for that, Tom. That's um, been a great little insight into just, I mean, so many topical debates on the on the on rugby, but also an insight into your own successful career as well. But thanks for coming on the S Word podcast, and best luck with ev- with everything. Thanks very much. Cheers, lads. It's been uh, it's really it's been fun. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This part of the podcast is when we like to discuss the articles submitted by you, our members. So, Wilson, this week we had Gabby's on, you know, sportsman pre-social media. What, dra- what gets dragged into the topic of conversation is The Last Dance on Netflix, which is about Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. What are, what are your views? Do you think social media has enhanced or hindered sportsmen today? Uh, yeah, well, first, I was uh, absolutely, I really enjoyed The Last Dance. I mean... It was basically like, have you, have you watched any of the All or Nothings on um, Amazon Prime? Or? Love all the All or Nothings, because, yeah. Because they've recently been released, whether it's for the All Blacks, a couple of the American football teams, and, um, they, and that felt, almost felt like revolutionary, how you kind of get that insight into like behind-the-scenes changing room conversations within sport. And I've absolutely, I absolutely love them. And um, I'm, a, I'm a colleague of um, of Gabby's actually, and I know she she loves all the all or nothings as well. What I found really interesting on the last dance, which Gabby touches on, is how different a sporting global icon has to be always perceived back in the pre-social media age, which Michael Jordan was, which was so in the in the 90s. And so Michael Jordan didn't have the massive following on Instagram. He didn't have the massive following on Twitter, but instead his character and personality was well known from the whole sporting world. And, and I thought it was fascinating to see, well, she touched on the pre-social media, but I think just pre just smartphones, because you see all these historic moments in the last dance and not a single person in the audience. I mean, obviously there's photographers, but not a single person in the audience has their phone out. Every single person there is living the moment as 
present as you can possibly be. And I thought it gave a great reminder how, firstly, how just as a sports fan and someone who just engrosses the sport, like you back in the day before these smartphones and social media, the whole priority was just to physically just enjoy the sport. Um, but then secondly, the social media kind of side of things, which um, Gabby touched upon, makes a massive difference. I mean, like someone like, I think it's off my mind, Patrice Evra. Patrice Evra is a very, very average footballer, <laughs> in my opinion. I'm, I'm not a Man United fan, but the man, but the man is quite funny on social media, which means he's suddenly got a great social media presence because he's he can do funny weird things. He can do some weird weird stuff in the car. But I I th- I thought Gabby was absolutely right to just just to highlight just how to honour the 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 man that is Michael Jordan, the pre-social uh, social media uh, era, because how incredible he was just as a character and as an athlete um, with no help from online devices. And I think, I think without the smartphone or social media, it gives such a much, it's a much better fan atmosphere in the stadium. I mean, there's nothing worse than going to a live sporting event and someone's just sitting there, whether it be gaming on their phone or trying to take loads of photos or videos. I mean, you're there, you've paid to be at the sports ground. Why not just watch it live rather than just being on your phone the whole time? I think personally, yeah, do you, do, you think, do you think there's anything which can be done regarding like the filming within sports arenas? I mean, I, I've been guilty. I've been at football matches and I get my phone out so like, when there was a penalty awarded. I mean, like, I've, I'm never, ever going to re-watch that penalty on my phone. I mean, I, I can watch match of the day at 10.30 in the evening and I'll be able to watch it. Like, what, what, why, why do you need to film it when you're there in the moment? Why do people, I don't know, it's strange. Why do people feel the need to do that? You're right. I mean, I've actually been to the United Centre, which is what the new, basically the new Bull Stadium. And I've seen that. And you know what? They have all these flags of all the kind of old Bulls era. And everyone's there taking photos and, you know, filming everything. And they're missing out on all the incredible entertainment that the sports, that the American sports worlds offer. Um, ask, it just seems such a waste. From your point of view, because obviously you've you've had um you've had a lot of experience in Chicago. I mean, you're you're a very very talented uh, racquets player, and so you've been to Chicago a couple Stop of times. I'll, 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 I'll give you that this week. I'll give you that this week. But can you just talk about when you're in Chicago? Like, is there much? Just are people still like idolizing about the past, the Michael Jordan era, or are they? Or like, what 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 is the main sport in Chicago? And um, are they still looking back to like that like those glory days of when they won six world championships? I mean, as soon as you walk into the United Center, there is a huge statue of Michael Jordan in his famous like Air Jordan kind of pose. And that's probably the, ma- the biggest statue in the stadium, whereas they actually share it with the, the ice hockey team, the Blackhawks. And I mean, to be honest, they both go through ups and downs. But yes, it's very predominantly, you know, Michael Jordan era flags. I think they even still sell shirts for him in the, in the, cell, in the shops and stuff. So yeah, I mean, even in just in Chicago downtown, you definitely see people wearing a Jordan basketball jersey or whatever. Much more than the baseball, I'd say. Yeah, it is. Is his, he was just like an absolute icon, and then I mean, I think understandably I mean, the, the, the 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 city of Chicago just worshipped him because I, I mean, maybe correct to tape. I think before Jordan, they hadn't won a World Series for. Oh, don't know how many years or whatever, or so, just something, something silly, and he kind of, it kind of came around. I can't. Silly, right. and he, he brought, he brought basically the basketball in Chicago to the map. Really, he brought the Bulls alive, and you know that they obviously have such a dynasty. But actually, talking about that, we then go on to 
um, Harry Osborne's article, which is an alternative view to The Last Dance. And he's, he suggests that it's getting so much hype on, on social media, or on the internet, due to coronavirus and the lockdown. And he thinks that, you know what, just because people are inside all day watching a lot of Netflix, watching a lot of TV, that, that that's why it's done so well. And it's one of the most, you know, viewed Netflix uh, documentaries ever. Um, what do you think? Do you think that's true? Do you reckon that's got some credibility? Or do you think it's just such a great documentary that, you know, in its outright, that that's why it's got the viewers? I mean, I've, I mean, I've, I've got to know... Harry Coyle. Harry's been a great journalist for the S Word. I mean, he's I think he's he's written three articles now for us, and he's he, he he's always providing a very controversial point of view. I mean, even flashing back to his last article, which was getting very agitated about how when you win the NBA, the NFL, you're you're called world champions. I mean, he's he's a big American sports fan, and um, he likes to think of the old. Well, as, as it's trying to suggest, the alternative points of views. And I can see where he's coming from because there would have obviously been more viewers watching it than if it was non-coronavirus. I mean, he says how the ratings were high as well. But for me personally, I think just the raw footage that they managed to um, to deliver to the audience, I think it's just so unique. And they, it does, everyone knew Michael Jordan. And I think it's a it's a beforehand, but it's, it's a great way to kind of actually tell the full story. And from my point of view, I, I we're obviously both big sports fans, but I didn't know much about the details of NBA, about how it works, how many matches they play in the regular season, all that kind of stuff. I watched a couple of um, playoff games in the past, but like nothing actually in depth. And I'm, I know we're, I think we're expecting an article from um, Mr. Edward Bigot, um, who's actually going to hopefully write an article about a follow-up from The Last Dance, about how you can get into NBA, maybe like the, the best teams, who's won the World Series for the last couple of years, who's, who are the world champions, who's the best young players at the moment, who's the most points scored, just like a, a proper like fact file about how to get into the NBA when it um, resumes after the coronavirus. I mean, would you, would you want to read an article like that, Roy? Would you be keen to get into become an NBA fan? I mean, yeah, I, I actually do count myself as an NBA fan, thanks, Wills. Um, <laughs> having been out there, following, going to quite a few of the Bulls games. But yeah, I mean, I've thoroughly enjoyed it whilst I'm there. And you know what? It's great to, learn, great to know some more, um, especially for whilst you're out there. So yeah, who, who, who the pool, who's the Bulls' really best player at the moment? Well, it used to be Derek Rose. He was a fan <laughs> favourite of me when I was out there. Well, that's what I mean. It used to be Michael Jordan. <laughs> well, no, no. It's just because I fled them when I was out there, actually. Um, here we go. Here's an interesting fact for you, <laughs> So, you know, in England, we have obviously the Premier League, we have cricket, we have rugby. And, you know, they, with, there's lots of days off without live sport on throughout the seasons, throughout the year, in fact. Whereas in America, they have ice hockey, basketball, NFL, and NBA. How many days off with no professional live sport do you reckon they have throughout the year? You mean NFL rather than NBA? You said basketball and NBA. Oh, yes, yes, how yes. how many days of live? How many days do they not have live sport in the year? Yeah, a live professional great, team. Great question. I'm going to go twenty-five. I think the last season I was out there, it was four days with no live sport. Yeah, because it four days throughout the year. Because what they're yeah they're playing basketball they're games playing. almost every other day. Exactly. Um, Four days of outlive sport is mad. 
It is crazy um, because what a world they live. <laughs> well, because obviously us in the, in England, yeah, we do. Maybe we enjoy cricket matches for five days consecutively for a test match or but football once a week we feel privileged but like and we get we get frustrated when there's an international break but think if there's there's matches every other day i mean for sports fans that's just dreamy but to, to conclude i mean didn't you say that there might be the potential of um some of the t20 cricket matches being played almost almost every other day um uh, to try and to try and wrap up the season for this summer's um t20 yeah i read an article about that actually from the oval about the surrey membership and I think they have, say they have something like 25,000 members and they've got to try and squeeze it down to 6,000, I believe, for each game. So they're going to obviously limit the number of games you can go to. But I think there's, it's something ridiculous, like the games are going to be played one every three days or something. So that, that's a lot of fun to look forward to. But yeah, anyway, very, very interesting. And um, yeah, thanks again for... Um, uh, this week's members article has been really, really interesting, and um, we've got a lot lined up for you in the future. And but thanks again for listening, and I hope you hope you've enjoyed um, this week's podcast and listening to Dom Wardock's story. I mean, we've certainly found it fascinating, and we look to hear from you in the future. And stay safe out there. And yeah, thanks again for listening. Petey, who's already set a world record here, he's stunning. And look now, three quarters of a body length clear. 25 metres to go. He's got this race won already unless something extraordinary happens. And it won't because he is in a class of his own. World record line appears as well. He's right there. A gold medal to the Great Britain team. Since 1988, it is Britain now. And it's Petey. And it's a world record. He can do no wrong. Adam Petey, quite stunning.